One of the reasons you have textual variants in the Greek New Testament is because, yeah, people make elementary mistakes, but I am 100% convinced that you can go through some of them and see where somebody left something out or changed something because they didn't think that's what it said. They didn't think it should have mean that. And there's one case in the Gospel of John that you could look at where it says, talks about the Son of Man who is in heaven as he speaks. A bunch of manuscripts said that doesn't make sense, so they took it out. They took it out because they didn't think it made sense. So when we talk about textual variance in the New Testament, be aware of the fact that sometimes there's people that change things because they don't like what it says or they think it shouldn't say that. So that's true too. Well, what do we know? We're going back. What do we know about Micah? Let's go back to page 27. Micah was one of the last prophets to both Israel and Judah. In fact, I think he holds the distinction of being the very last prophet to Samaria. Now, Samaria, of course, that's the capital city of the, ten, uh, the northern ten tribes. And when you read Samaria throughout the Old Testament, it is going to be a reference to the kingdom. After it's divided, Samaria stands, in, stands as the name for the northern ten kingdoms They're by their capital city, just like it'll talk about Jerusalem, which will stand for, after the splitting of the two, uh, the northern and southern kingdom, it'll stand for Judah and Benjamin. And before they're split, it can stand in reference for the people or the kingdom itself. So, this man was the last one. Now, you'll notice that we have in our notes, it said he was a contemporary to Isaiah and Hosea, and he ministered in the time of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. We know that from Micah 1.1. Now, Micah, uh, his city was on, it was on the border of a Philistine city of Gath, which is one of the five major cities of the Philistines. Now, does the word Gath ring a bell, the name of Gath? Does anybody know anybody? Does anybody know a famous person that came from from Gath? Goliath of Gath, one of the last of the Rephaim. Very interesting. He was right in. A, I don't think that has anything to do with him, but it's just kind of an interesting tidbit that that city was one of the last places that had Rephaim, their offspring, still running around way up into the time of King David. And so it's just just an interesting point along the way. Now. We say Micah was the last prophet because he ministered into the reign of Hezekiah. Now you'll notice, if you notice the second paragraph under Micah, the northern kingdom, Israel, fell in 722, which was the sixth year of King Hezekiah's reign. So if Micah's ministry went into the time of Hezekiah, it's extremely likely that he was there when, this, when the northern kingdom fell, and he may have witnessed everything that happened. Now that's... We don't know that that's for sure because there's no record that Micah witnessed the, the Assyrian invasion, uh, just like we have with Jeremiah, and there's no lamentations. Jeremiah, we know how he felt about what happened. He wrote about it in the book of Lamentations. Now, Micah was one of the harshest of the prophets, and you're going to run into the last, these last minor prophets. Some of them are really harsh, so maybe it's a good thing for them that they didn't have a longer ministry because you'll notice one example I have in your notes. How, how brush was Micah? Micah 3, 1 through 3. And I said, Hear, I pray you, O heads of Jacob, and ye princes of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know judgment, who hate the good and love the evil, who pluck the skin from off them and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from them, off them, and they break their bones and chop them in pieces as for the pot and, and as flesh within the cauldron? Uh, can you get much more blunt than that? This, this is a pretty harsh analysis. And 
you could, when you remember that we've said, and it's very true, that the prophets in the Old Testament were not well liked in many cases, and they were persecuted in all, probably almost every case, or most of them. Well, here's part of the reason why. If you're going around saying this, this is not the way to win friends and influence people, humanly speaking, but it's nonetheless, it was what God wanted him to say. So he was a harsh prophet. Now, one of the things that, about Micah that, that is important, well, two, there's two things that really stand out, but one of them is in Micah 4, 1 through 3, is almost word to word identical with Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4. Now, here's where you get into, sometimes your scholars get into these wonderful scholarly dissertations that they go back and, and they assume things. For example, there's speculation that one of them copied from the other. Well, I don't know that you could ever prove that. And there's even a better speculation out that there was an older common source that they both copied from. Well, Dave, sometimes scholarship is what we would call a waste of time. <laughs> and this is a case in point because this has been kicked around and debated. My, my whole take on this whole thing is that uh, both are passages of God-breathed scripture. And so the, the questions about whether one copied from the other or they copied from another source are just absolutely pointless. Now, in our footnote down in the bottom of the page, you'll notice that I, 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 I found a site that says, uh, it's a Hebrew website, I believe, and it said that the, the Hebrew text is 90% identical between those two passages. So you can see why scholars would say, well, one must have copied off of another. Well, even if one did copy off the other, does it change anything, folks? This is the case where you see, this is why I, I didn't go into a lot of scholarship and a lot of critique of the Old Testament because we didn't have the time and because it's this kind of thing. It's, it's just going around in circles and coming up with little, little value. Now, the other thing that Micah did, which is ironic, is that in the fifth chapter, he, he, is, the, he is the one that says that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And that became particularly important in time of King Herod. Because remember what Herod did? He found out where he was going to be born. And what did Herod do? Anybody remember? And my, my wife is, is mouthing it back there. He had all the children from two years old and under killed because he wanted to get rid of the, his successor. But just ask yourself a question. Who was really behind that? Who was really behind that slaughter? Satan. And the reason was you go all the way back to Genesis 3 and you find out one of the curses that came on Satan was that the woman would have a seed, a male heir that was going to crush him. And so Satan has done a lot to try and prevent that. That's why you had the Rephaim when the sons of God came in and you have angelic blood intermingling. You had the human bloodline corrupted down to eight people. That was done to keep Messiah from coming. And boy, that wasn't the only time. This is another time. So when you think of King Herod, yeah, he was, he was a terrible person, but behind the scenes, he was being prompted by someone else because when Herod committed this thing, he was old. He didn't live very many more years. He was an old man. Now, how is a baby being born a threat to an old man that's in his probably 60s, 70s, and is only going to be around a couple more years? Makes no sense until you factor in that Satan's behind the scene. Well, one of the last things we want to say about this as we hurry through here is that you can see, for example, that in, in the first chapter, in our outline, you notice we say that Samaria's doom cannot be reversed. Is the sum is a summary of what the first chapter is about, and that really shows you that really gives you the reason to suspect that yeah, this really is the last prophet to the northern kingdom, because their, their doom cannot be reversed, and so there's no reason to send other prophets. 
Well, and you can see the other things in our outline. We're going to go down to Micah. Now, Micah is the prophet of doom for Nineveh. And here again, this is one of those unusual prophets, something like Obadiah. He's a prophet that has one message for one city or one area. And he's pre- his, his whole message is about the doom of the coming doom of Nineveh. And it's only two chapters. So he has, uh, he has a few verses of encouragement for his people, but mostly it's devoted to the proclamation of doom upon Nineveh, the capital city. Now, you'll notice I, I put in, in the end of the first paragraph, while we cannot prove it, we believe Obadiah was never, was never, uh, never read in Edom, and Nahum was probably never, never sent to Nineveh. It's an interesting book, because, when, interesting thought, because the Obadiah was one chapter, if you remember that. It was a, pro, it was a doom of Edom, and I, I kind of doubt that it was ever sent to them. It was written for the people of God, not for those people. And the same thing with, with the book of Nahum. Why was, it, why was it not sent to Nineveh? Because the book of the Bible wasn't written for those people. It was written for the people of God. And so there wouldn't be any reason for them to see it. Now, like some of the other uh, minor prophets, we don't know much about Nineveh beyond the book that bears his name. But we do know when the book was written. And this is, this is fascinating because once in a while you run into these little intricacies where you can pinpoint something without having uh, the date given to you. Just look at the evidence. For example, in Nahum 3, 8, and 9, there's, it talks about the downfall of No, which was the ancient names for Thebes. Now, Assyria took Thebes in 663 B.C., which means Nahum, who spoke about, about Thebes as being destroyed, must have written his prophecy after 663, but before the, before the downfall of Nineveh, which he was proclaiming the downfall of. And that we know in the bottom of the page it was it was been dated at six August tenth six twelve B C. Now how about that? They even have the day, but somebody meticulously put it in there. So Bab- the Babylonians took Nineveh out August tenth six twelve. So that tells us it's an interesting little point along the way, but it tells us that Nahum was written between six sixty three and six twelve. So that's something you can't do with a lot of them. Now once again, top of page twenty eight. Nineveh is another blunt and somewhat graphic prophet in describing Nineveh's destruction. Now, just take a look at this. Look at, and, it's, and I have it in your notes, so it'll make it quick and easy for us. Look at Nahum 3, 3, and 6. The horseman lifts up both the bright sword and the glittering spear, and there's a multitude of slain and a great number of carcasses, and there's no end of their cor- corpses, and they stumble on their corpses. And I will cast abominable filth upon thee, and make thee vile, and will set thee as a gazing stock. Boy, that, that, that sounds like something that they put in a movie today, isn't it? Having horses tromping on bodies all over the place. That's, that's pretty graphic for the Old Testament. So, you have Micah, or rather Nahum, rather, a very blunt prophet again. Very important, but only those two chapters, and only for that one city. Now we come to somebody else. Now, Jonah, I was fascinated. I hope you folks like Jonah. That, that was, all those things about Jonah, it was almost, uh, it's almost like a comedy in a way. If you look at the things that are said, he was the only prophet that, that was ever unhappy that he had a successful ministry. He's the only one. And that seems strange. He was angry that God saved those people, angry that God delivered somebody. Well, 
that's not exactly what you expect to see. Now, this man is not the same as in that regard, but he is unique in the sense that, that what is missing from this book, and this is the bottom of the second paragraph, is that Habakkuk's message that he proclaimed to his people is not recorded in his book. Did you know that? He's, he doesn't really have his message in the book. What you have in his book is he's the prophet of righteousness. And the reason we say that is because this man was concerned about the righteousness of God and the judgments that were going to come on the people. And he doesn't talk about what he said to the people, so I don't really know. And this is kind of an unusual one. You don't really know. And the only thing we know about him is his name was only recorded twice in the Old Testament. So you really can't find out anything about it. Now, you'll notice, and this is in the first paragraph, and I had to put this in there because I love some of the Jewish tradition. You would not believe some of the things that they teach. People think that we're... Uh, that we fundamentalists, that we Bible teachers are wacky in some things. But look what they say here. One uh, Jewish tradition claims that Habakkuk was carried by the hair. Now, don't laugh because Ezekiel had that happen to him. He was carried by the hair. So, Pastor, you couldn't have it happen. Because <laughs> it wouldn't do it. Couldn't do it to Pastor. So, he was carried by the hair to take a meal to Daniel while Daniel was in the lion's den. The tradition states that Habakkuk and Daniel enjoyed the feast while Daniel explained his life and work in Babylon. Now, I, you notice what I said about that. This sounds like a wonderful Bible story for children, but there's no biblical support or evidence that such a thing happened. But if you go to Jewish sites, if you go to a Jewish site and put in Habakkuk and look at what do we know about Habakkuk, this is stated as though it's a fact. Now, they do believe it, so there's some really interesting things. If you want entertainment, take some of these minor prophets, go in and, and ask for Jewish commentary on whatever, the, like Micah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, any one of them, and you will find there's some really wing-ding things they said about these people. They have some really strange, I, I, taken by the hair, what would the reason for that be? I don't know. But so, Habakkuk, as we look at him, his structure is really just built around two simple questions that he asks. And you'll notice that we have down in, in, in about the third paragraph, fourth paragraph, where it says, We call Habakkuk the prophet of righteousness because his questions to God concern righteousness. Now, his, the whole structure of his book is built around, he asked two questions to God and God gave him two answers. And there's nothing about what he said to his people. It's just about two questions, two answers. This is different. You don't find this anywhere else in the Old Testament. So this is, this is really a fascination to me. But his, his, and, and the thing about him too, you have to remember, is he's the prophet of righteousness. Because look what he says. Here's his first question, Habakkuk 1, 3, and 4, and it's printed in our notes. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slackened, and judgment does never go forth. For the wicked compass the righteous, and therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. So he's concerned about the righteous being circled around, being cut off. And the second question, in Habakkuk 1.13, and this is an interesting one here. This is one people will pull out of context and try to use. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devour the man that is more righteous than he. So he was concerned about the righteousness of God, how a righteous God could permit some of these things to happen. Of course, God gave him his answers, and you can see that, but that's, that's what this, this, uh, this little book of three chapters is about. Two questions, two answers from God. 
And I really would love to know what message he preached to people. There's another pastor. There's another one that I just, I can't give you an answer. Now, the next one down here we have, the royal prophet of the day of the Lord, Zephaniah. Now, Zephaniah is going to be another one. There, is, there may be at least one other one. I believe Daniel was of the royal seed line. If he was not, uh, I don't know which part of David's line he was, but it appears that the, Daniel was uh, from the royal seed line. But this one, there's not too much question about it. Zephaniah is the only prophet we know that was of royal seed. And uh, Zephaniah identifies himself in Zephaniah 1.1. Now, it's printed in your notes. The word of the Lord, which came unto Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Am- Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, Am- uh, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now, in doing some research on this, the name Hezekiah of, of Ze- and Zephaniah is none other than the name of Hezekiah. It isn't that unusual for names to be spelled in more than one way in the Old Testament. And that was the case with Hezekiah. So I believe, and, and, and there's a pretty good number of scholars that believe, and it fits in this rather interestingly, that Zephaniah was from the line of Hezekiah. But Hezekiah put one of his sons on the throne, not, not this man's father. So he would have been, in that sense then, he would, have been a, he would have been a distant blood relative of King Josiah, who was one of the most righteous kings of Israel. He really was a remarkable guy. Unfortunately, we don't know that there was any kind of relationship between the two. But it's interesting to note that this man was, I believe, a, a prophet who was of royals, the royal bloodline. Now, remember what we said about the royal bloodline. David had a bunch of wives. He had six, I think, six wives or something like that. Was it 18 he wound up with? I don't remember now. These guys marry multiple times. David, how could you, how could you do that? Isn't one wife enough trouble? <laughs> well, I, could, uh, I will be in trouble. So if you see me on Sunday or Wednesday and I have bruises, uh, I won't try and fib to where they came from. I'm, <clears throat> I'm asking for trouble. The other one that I have asked for trouble for is when you read Revelation, it says there was silence in heaven for half an hour. I stood up and said, where are the women? I did this at Valley, and boy, everybody just got a hoot out of that. Needless to say, I was in a, we're going to have to buy a dog, so when I get in the doghouse, there's actually a doghouse to get into. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so, so Zephaniah, on the top of page 29, Zephaniah refers to the day of the Lord six times in, in uh in his book. Now, the day of the Lord only occurs 23 times in the whole Testament, 23 times in 22 verses, and six of them are in the little book of Zephaniah, which is three chapters. So, this is the whole, this, he's a kind of a one sermon man. He's one of those you had the prophet about Nineveh. Now, this is the prophet about the day of the Lord. Now, please notice in that, in that second paragraph down, Zephaniah's message to Judah primarily concerns the great tribulation, but he does cry out, about the wickedness of the people. And you have some other things said there, but one of the things that you were going to see in the Old Testament when you read these prophets is there's what they call compenetration, which is a fancy term. What it really means is that there will be statements about the future and judgment, about what's going to happen in tribulation that will be mixed in together with judgments that are going to be immediate to the people. And so you can't separate them from the time. Now, we can, looking back, seeing what some of those things were and comparing some of the things that are said in Zephaniah to what we know from Revelation. Other things, we can say, yes, this is definitely future. 
but you have a, a mixing together of them. And that's, that's why people have so much trouble with the minor prophets, is that they don't, Zephaniah didn't sit down and say, now, this concerns the Great Tribulation. You know, it'd be real nice if they did those kind of things, but nobody's ever done that. By the way, there is only one, did you know there is one writer of scripture who does, in two of his books, actually three of his books, give you an outline of what he's going to write about? Did you know that? Anybody know who that is? This is, this is, a, this is an off-the-wall question, but if anybody knows who that is, you get ten brownie points. It's John. If you read John 1, 1 through 18, he's going to tell you what the whole gospel is about. And First John... The first chapter, the first four or five verses, he's going to tell you what he's writing about there. Revelation, by the time you get to the first chapter, he's giving you an outline of what the book's about. He's the only writer that does that. I just wish the others had done that. He should, have, he should have given courses in how to write. Anyway, so, the day of the Lord is coming, and it's going to be, it's going to be devastating. And so when you read Zephaniah, please remember that there is going to be material that concerns the Great Tribulation, but there's also wickedness and there's also warning that judgment is coming upon these people. And, of course, it was going to be Babylon. Now, moving right along, we have another one. Here is, an, here is another person. Once again, we have some fascinating people. Here is a man who probably had the shortest prophetic ministry in the Old Testament. I have it way down in one of my paragraphs that Haggai probably had one of the shortest ministries in scripture about four months did you know that well it's it's down in the one two three it's toward the bottom of the third paragraph you can see it he had he, he he started his preaching in the sixth month of the second year of darius haggai and in the seventh month and in the ninth month and that was it so you have from sixth month to the ninth month you have four months of ministry recorded and what happened that was it that was it. So this is a fascinating prophet in the sense that he only had a short ministry and it was only really for one thing. Uh, we do know a little bit about, you know, unlike most of the minor prophets, we do know a little bit about Haggai from Ezra 5.1 and 6.14 because God used Ezra and the prophet Zechariah to stir up the people who come back from captivity under Cyrus to rebuild the temple. Now, the temple was started and the first returnees came back in 536 and they built, they started the foundation, uh, they put the altar in, in in the seventh month after they were back. And in the second year, they laid the foundation of the temple. However, notice the top of the, the next paragraph down, the second paragraph. For 16 years, nothing was done to the temple. Now, we've talked about this, and we know that the enemies of the Jews wrote letters back to the, the Persian kings and, and told them terrible things. These Jews are going to rebel. If they rebuild this city, they won't pay you taxes anymore. The minute you say taxes to government, boy, you got their ears. You got their ears. You talk about not getting tax money. They're right there. And so they put a stop to it until later. And, of course, the reason that it was changed was because Darius went, went back and looked through, the looked through the official government records, and he found out that the temple had been ordered by Cyrus to rebuild at Persian expense. And as a result, Darius ordered the work to continue and told the enemies to leave Israel alone. And that's the bottom of that paragraph. So you see, Zechariah came along, and he was the one who motivated the people to get moving on this. It took him four months of ministry, and that's all. Now, there's an interesting thing on the bottom of the page, and here's another place where we get into a little bit of scholarly speculation. Uh, they, Scholarly pursuits will cause speculation. That's really what it is. Some scholars have suggested that Haggai was very old when he began his four-month ministry. 
This is based entirely upon what Haggai said in Haggai 2.3. He said, Who is left among you who saw this house in her former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes as comparison, in comparison of it as nothing? Now the assumption is that Haggai was one of those who had seen the Solomonic Temple. But the temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. and was not rebuilt to 520. So anybody who saw the temple who would have had been over 70 years of age. Now, was Haggai one of those? Well, some have suggested he was. But when you look at Haggai 2.3, does it say that he was one of those people that saw it? I don't see that it says he was. But you should be aware of this because if you ever read a commentary on it, you might see people say, well, he was an old man and he only ministered four months because he was old and he, because he said this automatically, he must... No, that, that, that's all just putting things together that you can't do. We don't know how old he was. So if you ever read that, uh, take it with a grain of salt because it's just, I would say, mostly just speculation. Now... Uh, Haggai has a whole sum of two chapters, and it's mostly just to get the people up and running. Now, we come, we have two people left, and would you believe we have 20 minutes, and we have two prophets, and we'll even have time for questions, and we might even stop early, which would be a rarity. Zechariah, the priest and prophet who was the grandson of a priest and prophet. Now, here's another only. This is one, you know, we have, we have one back here. This definitely, he's, he appears to be the only prophet who was of royal blood. Now we have the only prophet who was also a priest, whose grandfather was also a prophet and priest. And that man is Zechariah. Now Zechariah's grandfather was Edo, I-D-D-O, in Zechariah 1.1. And Edo was one of the priests who returned to Jerusalem after 70 years in captivity. You can find that in Nehemiah chapter 12, 1 through 4. He's one of the priests listed, Edo. And some speculate that Edo brought his grandson, that would have been Zechariah, with him to Jerusalem. Now, that's, that's a, an interesting speculation, but you can't, you can't prove it. But it is interesting. He may have been born, and we don't know. I, I'm just, I'm just uh, kind of dismissing that as being a, a kind of a nice little fanny, story tale, a story for kids to be told. So, but Edo himself was called a seer, which is an older name for prophet. Now, you might not know this, but it says Edo recorded some of the acts of Solomon. We know that from 2 Chronicles 9.29. Some of the acts of Rehoboam from 2 Chronicles 12.15 and King Abijah in 2 Chronicles 13.22. Now, the sad thing is, you'll notice the last statement. Although Edo's prophecies were not part of the Word of God, they were used as a source of information about Solomon, Rehoboam, and Abijah in their time. Now, the sad thing is, we don't have them. I would dearly love to see some of these books. You, we mentioned back at the beginning of this section on the Minor Prophets, if you remember, there were a number of, of uh, Minor Prophets that, that, that uh, it's way back on my pages, that prophesied, and some of them wrote books, and they weren't, they weren't Scripture. But they had information that we, I would have loved to know, especially when it talks about more things about the life of Rehoboam and Solomon. I would have loved to see what they had to say, but we don't know. And I'm going to have to uh, take it upon myself to do a little research and see if anybody's ever found anything. Because sometimes they do find it. They found that uh, one of the interesting documents, um, you can find it online if you're interested in it, the Prayer of Hezekiah. If you remember Hezekiah, 
Or not Hezekiah, I mean the prayer of Manasseh, excuse me. The prayer of Manasseh. Manasseh was the most wicked king of the southern kingdom by far. He had a 55-year reign and he did horrible things, but we find out in Second Chronicles he was taken captive and taken back to Babylon, and then they turned around and released him. And he made, it says that he made things right with his God while he was in Babylon, although it was too late to save the nation. And nobody knows exactly what he prayed, but there is a piece of literature that is called the Prayer of Hezekiah. You can go on the internet and find it, and it doesn't read that badly. It reads enough like Scripture. Who knows? Maybe it even actually could be close to what he said. It'd be, it's interesting. If nothing else, it's just interesting to know what people might have thought. I don't know when that was written. It was probably written long after the fact. But the Prayer of Hezekiah is available, and it's just, it's just fascinating because it may be historically accurate. We just don't know. But it's just it's kind of fun just to see, as long as you don't equate it with the Bible. It's not part of the Scripture. So there are, the point being that there were a lot of things written by men that were not Scripture, that were good men, that were prophets, but it wasn't part of Scripture. Well, we don't... That's about God's business. So, Zacharias, at the time of his call, was a young man. And early in his ministry, you notice he shared some of the same responsibilities with Haggai. But his ministry went far beyond just stirring up the people to rebuild the temple. Uh, Zechariah recorded the most messianic prophecies of all the minor prophets. How about that? Did you know that? Zechariah, in his chapter, has more messianic prophecies than all the other minor prophets put together. But the most unusual feature of Zechariah's ministry is a series of of visions which he had on a single night, beginning in Zechariah 1.7 and continuing to a new vision came in Zechariah 7.1. Now the reason we say this is because the way these visions read, there's nothing to indicate there was any break until you get to chapter 7 and verse 1. So in one night's time, this man had seven visions from God. Now that, that's unusual, that's unique. You won't find that by anybody else, but you can see them uh, we have them listed in, in our text here. You have, let's see, his first vision is in, in Zechariah 1.7, then in 1.18, then in 2.1, 3.1, 4.1, and 6.1, and then the last one was in 6.9. And then two years later, Zechariah had two more visions. So this man had, he had a whole string of visions, but that seems kind of unusual to have all those visions. So he, he had uh, more visions in, time, in a strange time, so he's got some really unique things. So he has more messianic material than any of the other minor prophets. He has an unusual system where God reveals to him seven, seven visions in one night's time. I th- and I, I always thought that in the, in the Christmas carol with Scrooge that he had, uh, he had three ghosts in one night. Oh, that was pretty bad. This guy had seven visions in one night. Now, the other thing about Zechariah that really intrigues me, and this, if you want an area to study, this would be a good area to go study. Zechariah met with angels. Look how many times he had more interaction with spirit beings, mostly angels, than any other book of the Old Testament. Now, he has 14 chapters. That's, that's long, but Isaiah had 66 chapters. Jeremiah had 52 chapters. Genesis has 50 chapters. Nobody, any place else, has any... Look at all these references. Look at all the references in bold fonts. Zechariah met with angels in. There's your list of them. Zechariah 1, 9, 1, 11, 12, 13, 14, 19, 2, 3, 3, 1, and on and on it goes. So he's met with angels and spirit beings more than anybody else. Now, this will give you an idea. One of the benefits of going through here and reading Zechariah and looking at some of these things, you will see 
in reality, what goes on behind the scenes, what goes on in God's government. You know, God hasn't just turned this world loose and it just, it's running on its own and God's setting up in heaven saying, well, I better watch to make sure it doesn't get out of control. There are angels down here that are taking care of things. And they're in charge of things. And they know what's going on. And they're only going to go so far. And we also know that the Holy Spirit is the restrainer on top of all that. So, we don't have to worry about those things. But when you read through uh, uh, Zechariah, I think that you'll come to appreciate how much God is really in control of things. That he, God doesn't just know what's going on down here. He does by omniscience. He does by his omnipresence. But he also has spirit beings down here who are going to report in. You remember back in Job, in the first two chapters, where it had two different occasions where the sons of God, sons of God come and report in to God on the throne? Well, these are some of those angels, and they're reporting what's going on, and they're getting their instructions from God, and so these angels are behind the scenes. So you, if you look at the, the outline of the book, you can see that there's a lot that goes on in here that's going to involve angelic involvement in the human race. And that is something that's just absolutely stunning. Because of all places to find it, this one book has got so much there. I would have thought other people would have had more. Now, Isaiah does have the vision of seraphim, and, and that's the only place in the Bible we know of the group of, angel, of spirit beings called seraphim. But this man, look at how many times he sees angels. Well, his book closes, of course, with the future restoration of Israel. And there's some really fascinating things in here towards the end. In the last chapters, from chapters 9 through 14, there's a lot of information involved with the second coming of Christ and the events that lead up to his, the Battle of Armageddon and so forth and the future glory of Israel. You'll find a lot of material there that is just a little bit different than anybody else has written in the Old Testament. And so that's the beauty of this. Each one of these prophets have something different to say. And you don't just read Isaiah to know about the future glory of Israel. You can also find some from Malachi. You can also find some in the Psalms. You'd be, you'd be surprised how many things in the Psalms are actually millennial. We didn't have time to go into that, but there's a lot of millennial material that talks about what's going to be true in the millennium. And it's right there for us to see. Uh, by the way, I did skip one thing I meant to say with, with, um, with one of my, my men back here. I skipped right over it. Um, with Habakkuk, just to go back for a second, I missed one thing that I, I wanted to say back on page 28, and I apologize for skipping this, but I wanted you to see this because this is interesting. You do know that there's 50 some psalms that have no authors listed. This man might have been one of those men that wrote some of them. Why do I say that? Because when you look at in, in his third chapter, Habakkuk's third chapter reads very much like one of the Psalms. It even says, to the chief singer on my string instruments. That is a notation that you have in the Psalms repeatedly. And I should have mentioned that, but the third chapter is almost like it's one of the Psalms. And so, just with Habakkuk, he could be, and I can't prove it, but he could be one of the authors of some of the Psalms that are not titled. We don't know, but it's possible because if there's no title and you see a man that wrote in that format, he could well have written one of the Psalms. Now, that has nothing to do with Zechariah, but I, I, just, I just remembered that. It came back to me, and I wanted to, I wanted to make sure I said that because that is just one of those little bits of information that will help you appreciate the book of Habakkuk and the, and the intricacy of the Old Testament because you do know that all the Psalms are not written at the same time. 
Now, I don't think we asked the question, but does anybody know who wrote the first psalm? This is, this is a, not a, My wife got it. You get 10 points. Moses. Psalm 90 is a psalm of Moses. So they weren't all written at the same time, and some of the psalms appear to have bitten, been written a little bit later. And it almost sounds like some of them were, were written after the nation of Israel was taken into captivity by Babylon. There's some of the things that are said. So they weren't all written at the same time. So it is possible that this man, Habakkuk, could have written psalms. Just a very interesting thought. All of which goes to show there's a lot to learn out of the Old Testament, a lot to look into, that we just haven't had the time. And I don't know that we'll ever get some of those answers, but I'll tell you what, I'm going to go looking for some of them. I will. You folks ought to join me in that. It's, it's a study that's well worth doing. Well, we come down to, believe it or not, the last prophet in the Old Testament. Can you believe it? We actually did the impossible. Now, had somebody told me that I'd actually be able to get through all the old books of the Old Testament in 12 weeks, I would have said, you don't know Motormouth very well. That's me. That's my friends used to call me that. Well, they were, I don't know if they were my friends or not. They called me that, though. <laughs> but I did not think it was possible. So, but here we are. And I, I hope that you've enjoyed this as much as I've enjoyed sharing it. With Malachi, he is the last prophet. Now, here again, this is one of those frustrating things. We have little precise evidence a little evidence of the precise time that Malachi ministered, but most scholars put in between 450 to 400 B.C. So this would place Malachi's ministry about 100 years after the, after the exiles came back from Babylon under, under Ezra. And, you'll, and the, it's given the history of their ancestors, it is not surprising that the Jews quickly began to break the law. The people began by offering polluted or defiled sacrifices in the temple in chapter 1. And the priesthood corrupted the observance of the law, chapter 2. And you find that's, that's one of the things Christ has to say about in, 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 his, in the Gospels. He has to say to some of the Jews, some of the Pharisees, that you have corrupted the law by your ordinances that you've made up, your traditions that you've made up. And so it goes all the way back within 100 years. Boy, the lesson of history is that people don't learn the lessons of history because here it is again. So they had, and, and then of course there's that well-known, often misused chapter where people were robbing God by not paying their tithe as required by the law. And did you know there's a hymn in the, in the hymn book It's bringing all the tithes into the storehouse? There actually is, and I believe it's in our hymnal. And so it is... It's such a terribly, and the thing is, it really it bothers me is when you go through the Old Testament, why did the people pay the tithe? Does anybody know why did the people pay the tithe to, uh, to the priests in the temple? Why'd they do it? Well, didn't the priests have to live somehow? If they didn't have land, they didn't have land inheritance. They did have cities, yeah, and they did have fields around them for livestock, but they didn't have the land to farm and grow. And how did they, ha- how did they live? The tithe was to, to support the priesthood. So if you're going to give a tithe now, who, where's the priesthood you're going to support? If you want to give tithes today, do we have a priesthood? Yeah, we do, all of us. So how does that work? It just, it just doesn't make any sense. Well, so you can see through here, and it's, it's fascinating because in four chapters, 
uh, he is just one of these, one, once again, I didn't put it in here, but he's kind of a, a pretty much direct and to the point prophet. One of the things I think that you can say about most of the minor prophets is they tend to be a little more blunt to the point because they don't have all of those chapters like Isaiah to say all the things. And when you boil Isaiah down, you could take a lot of those things and, and compress it down to a smaller work and you'd come out with something sounding like a minor prophet. But you see that it's, it's really simple. It says, God's, uh, Israel's contempt for God showed itself in observances of the law and the priesthood had corrupted the observance of the law and the people followed suit in the second chapter, the third chapter, the people hadn't paid their tithes. Bing, bing, bing. Right there, there's three big... There's just three major points, and that's all you have to say. And then the great and terrible day of the Lord is coming. So, with that being said, we have reached the end of the line in the Old Testament. Now, there's a lot that we didn't say, and so we're open for questions about anything we have. Actually, we have 15 minutes, and uh, we're open for questions, comments, or observations about anything. I think the thing I like the most about the Old Testament is all of the detail about different people, all of the detail about what God is like. I especially enjoy, on my part, when you look in the book of Isaiah from the chapters 40 through about 50, 50, 55, 51 to 55, you have so many things stated about God, about the majesty of God, knowing the end from the beginning. In Isaiah, in Isaiah 46, 10, he says, I'm God, before me there's another guy telling, declaring the end from the beginning. I've always thought that was remarkable. God declares the end from the beginning. He knows everything. And it's just on and on beautiful things. So I like Isaiah from about 40 through about 51 to 55, somewhere along there. All the things it says about God. You have more theology, advanced theology in the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah, than you do in the New Testament. Did you know that? I've taught theology proper. And guess where I get a lot of my references from? Actually, most of them. You know where I get them from? The Old Testament. So you get a lot of theology proper back there.